0: Hello, I'm Marcus Brigstock, and welcome to Breaking Good, the podcast rethinking separation and divorce, brought to you by Forsters. Now, over the past few weeks, we've covered the most important areas of discussion in terms of family law, which are Mrs. Doubtfire, Kramer versus Kramer, marriage story, and of course, friends. (laughs) But in all seriousness, uh, although The Courtroom is an excellent starting point for a good drama, today we're going to find out more about what it's like in reality. So, as always, I'm joined by Joe Edwards. Hello, Joe. Hi there, Marcus. How are you? I'm really well. I'm really well, thank you. How are you? Well, I'm all right. I mean, with this side of a of a new year, and I think, I don't know, it felt tentative at first, didn't it? But I think we can say now, happy new year
1: i think we can say happy new year yes it feels like it's been a long january so far let's be honest but uh, yes. fingers crossed for more positive things this year
0: exactly and while we're recording this podcast by the time we've finished there will be a new president of the united states by the time this reaches the listeners who knows what will have happened but in this very moment it all seems hopeful
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a historic day, Marcus, for reasons other than this podcast being recorded, yes.
0: Exactly. There's also that inauguration thing. And this week, uh, I'm very delighted to say that we're also joined by Rosie Shum. Hello, Rosie. Hi, Marcus. Good to hear Welcome you Welcome back. Again. How are you?
2: Doing really well, yeah, in circumstances allowing. It's like Groundhog Day, but doing really well.
0: Yes, exactly. I, I mean, the last time we spoke, you were managing to work remotely with occasional meetings. And since then, everything's locked down much more, uh, intensely than that. But is it, is it all okay work-wise?
2: definitely it's very busy work wise and juggling sort of homeschooling is is a struggle but it's it's working okay
0: yeah you never know when someone practicing family law says it's very busy at the moment with a smile on their face whether that isn't indicative <laughs> of terrible things happening for lots of people but I it's not it always the sad. case as we've established although yeah. this january maybe yes
2: yeah, I think it's a very tough time for lots of families across the country. Um, and I think in terms of working as a team, we're finding um, ways of sort of focusing on well-being and making sure we're looking after everybody, including our clients.
0: Yeah, good. Well, over the past few weeks, we've talked a lot about why it might be preferable to avoid court if you can. But what are the circumstances where court is the right place to be?
1: Well, it's a really interesting question, Marcus, because I'm conscious during this series so far, we focused a lot on mediation, and I yep. invariably encourage mediation as a first port of call. But in doing so, there's a risk of demonising court. And there are cases, particularly money cases, where, unfortunately, going to court is is inevitable or necessary for part of the process. So in terms of when it is the right thing to do, there, there are various uh, occasions, really, sometimes it's just the case that the couple involved have different ideas about the pace of the process um, and one of them wants to move things forward and one of them doesn't so although court can be a bit of a blunt tool there it may be that one of them wants to uh, bring court proceedings just to inject a bit of pace into a process. Hmm. Um, sometimes,
0: that, a, Sorry to sorry. cut in there Joe, but yeah. just on that so Somebody might say, this is going much slower than I wanted, so I'm going to take this to court. And is that sometimes, if you like, a provocation that will speed things up and then court is avoided? Or once that choice is made, does it have to sort of go ahead?
1: I mean, it's certainly never too late to negotiate a settlement mm. let's put it that way and so as we'll come on to discuss the vast majority of cases even where a court process is started they will settle somewhere along the way whether that's through negotiation with solicitors kitchen table discussions on the ground mediation um mm. so yeah sometimes sometimes it there can be reasons why one person does want to press ahead. Certainly at the start of the the pandemic, for example, delay suited one spouse more than the other in cases where assets may have been going down in value, um, that the person who was the owner of those might have wanted to get things resolved rather more quickly. Um, Hmm. Sometimes it's also about emotional readiness. And I can think of a case I had a number of years ago where there was a poor lady, my client, who was told by her husband, out of the blue, 40 years of marriage, that he was in a new relationship and he wanted a divorce and she was absolutely devastated and i remember very very vividly he was really Wanting to push things forward, his solicitor was threatening court proceedings. And I said, look, let's just hold back here. Give her the emotional space that she needs. And it was a much easier conversation once she'd had that benefit. And then finally, there, there are other reasons why court proceedings may be needed. On occasion, there's perceived to be inadequate financial disclosure on the part of one of the parties. And so court orders may be needed to compel the right financial disclosure. Sometimes, invariably, dare I say, one person might have unrealistic ideas about what settlement looks like, and so they may need a judicial steer. And then sometimes, finally, there are genuinely novel or complex points of law, which a judge will have to grapple with to decide what the appropriate outcome is. So all sorts of factors behind court proceedings. But really, the message here is that doesn't mean that once you've issued court proceedings, you're on an inevitable crash course Mm. to a final And a determination by a judge.
0: And and so, if somebody has been dishonest or or perhaps even mistakenly misrepresented their financial status, again, is the idea of court a sort of um, let's say a focus sharpener for them, and and things then very quickly get resolved? Or do people quite often go, well, I'll go to court and take my chances. You can't prove I've got that money squirreled away in the Channel Islands.
2: I think both of those are true, actually, Marcus. I think that um, the court's great for for if you're wanting to forensically analyse someone's assets. You do so as lawyers, often with the help of an accountant, and you often need judicial input on whether. On whether you actually need that person to provide more disclosure. And so you need the sort of teeth of the court, shall we say, for getting orders like that. So there is a way of actually trying to extract that information from the other party. But you're absolutely right. There will definitely be cases, certainly that Joe and I have dealt with, where we've seen husbands, wives sometimes hiding assets offshore and it being very, very difficult to find out where those assets are or how much there is in the pot entirely. And so judges don't generally like sort of fishing expeditions. You have to have a good reason for asking questions. But you often do have good reasons for asking questions and joining up those dots. And when you do have those good reasons and you still can't find the assets, judges can make adverse inferences in your favor, in your client's favor, perhaps, to say, Mm -hmm. well, We can see that there's something there. We don't know precisely what it is, but we're going to give you more of the other assets in order to compensate for that. So I think both of those things are true. And the um, judges and the family courts in England can be really useful at trying to get to to the bottom of all of that.
0: Mm. So... The courtroom drama has us imagining that uh, when you do go to court, both parties arrive. One has a huge team of lawyers who are all wearing remarkable suits and the other has someone (laughs) quite scruffy wearing corduroy. And you know that they're going to win because they're the underdog. And that's how (laughs) drama is. Uh, And there's a lingering glance between the once happily married couple uh, which then turns into acrimony. And eventually one of them says, I've realised you can't love someone who doesn't know how to love themselves. I have to have some thinking time now. And that's the end of the drama. So is it <laughs> is it exactly <laughs> like that?
2: No, no. Oh, no. Yes. yeah. <laughs> right. Disappointingly. I- Sorry to disappoint you. My clients are often disappointed at the lack of theatrics. Yes, they are. And and how mundane these early hearings can often be. Yeah, so Um, take us
0: through that. What what does the first stage look like? What happens at, at the first hearing?
2: Well, the first hearing can sometimes be quite mundane. It can sometimes be about housekeeping matters. It's got, often in financial proceedings. It's called a first appointment hearing, and you will have a barrister acting for you at that hearing, representing you in the in the courtroom, so to speak. And you have your solicitor holding your hands, um, metaphorically, of course. I don't mm. actually hold my clients' hands. Especially uh, not at
0: the
2: moment. <laughs> Especially not. social distancing. <laughs> Definitely. And um, and essentially, um, you you go through any disclosure points that may have arisen before that hearing. You'll have to provide each other with financial disclosure. And you have questions that you ask of the other party. And the judge will sort of be like an editor, really, and decide mm. what questions are proportionate, what questions are disproportionate. Um, the other side will be arguing that's an onerous question. You can't ask for six years of bank statements. And you'll be saying, well, actually, we can because he was having an affair six years ago and so forth therefore that we should we should be uh, gathering together all of all of the evidence of what he's been spending on his mistress or whatever it might be so i mean there are dramatic points to be made but certainly the the picture that you've just painted is quite far from reality as Mm -hmm. the hearings progress and i'll let joe talk about the next stage as the hearings progress they get a lot more interesting don't they joe (laughs) Yeah, they do. And Rosie's absolutely right. I think for lots of my clients, they're quite surprised at how
1: perfunctory that first stage is. So Rosie says it's about housekeeping. It's about information gathering, in essence. So there will have been a layer of financial disclosure. There may be a whole bank of questions which arise. It's for the judge, as Rosie has said, to decide what questions are proportionate and which questions won't be permitted at that that stage. Then the next stage. Now, this is something which um, I've said to you before, Marcus, I've been practising for far longer than I'd care to to remember. <laughs> and when I first started practicing, we didn't have this second stage. It's something called a financial dispute resolution appointment, or perhaps appropriately on uh, the inauguration day in, in the US. It's the mm-hmm. FDR, FDR, as we call uh, it. Oh, right, yes. Yes. Um, So at the FDR, that's about conciliation and it's a layer of the process where all of the information has been gathered and the parties proverbially have their heads knocked together by a judge. So a judge will hear about what the asset base is, what the issues in the case are, and then he or she will be invited to give judicial steer as to if they were determining the case at a final hearing, what would they impose as the outcome. So it's a non-binding determination. Something that was introduced in the late 1990s because up until that point people were going effectively straight from that first directions hearing to final hearing without any real negotiation that incur a lot of costs along the way and then they would reach agreement on the steps of the court having incurred all of those costs. So the FDR in our experience, Rosie, is really effective, isn't it, in, in
2: settling a lot of those cases. Now, I've seen a huge rise in success of private FDR hearings in the last few years. Um, i would say that actually very few of my cases go to a final hearing which we'll talk about in a moment and it's this idea of providing a sort of tailor-made service for your clients they can choose their judge they can choose their venue um, on a private basis you know i had a client very recently who was so pleased with how the day went um, she said i cannot believe it was actually actually quite upbeat the judge was happy because she made everyone treats. Um, she actually cooked for um, little what, treats. the judge did? No, my client did. Oh, and my, <laughs> client, <and> my client <laughs> actually brought along all these little treats and gave them to the other side to make her husband, husband feel better and gave them to the judge and everyone was very happy. But we settled the case on that particular day and went really, really well. Um, <laughs> here's, you know, a, here's
0: a biscuit and now, <laughs> now give me the house and more than half of what you have for the rest of your life. How I cynical, how the cynical
1: Marcus!
0: <laughs> All I'm saying is I never got the cookie. <laughs> that's the way the cookie crumbles, Marcus. Yes, it turns out. So uh, that's that's fascinating that 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 it that something so personal was able to happen. And actually, I'm being glib, but it, it it's very heartening to know that that process can go like that. So. At the other end of that, or potentially at the other end of that scale, how do you sort of emotionally prepare your clients for the parts of this that might be very difficult or in particular for surprises?
1: That's a really good question, Marcus. Now, I think part of the the preparation comes from the fact that the the process obviously doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a number of months. So I've mentioned already in certain cases where there isn't emotional readiness at the outset, if I have a good relationship with my my counterpart, the other solicitor, I will try to persuade them um, to, to hold off issuing court proceedings in any event and just get my clients some time to go and get some emotional support. But during the process itself, because we go through this discovery, getting information bit first and mm. clients aren't being asked to think too carefully about settlement then. I think there just is that inbuilt having time for preparation um, that means that generally by the time we get to that second hearing, the FDR, we've had time to look over the disclosure together with our clients. We've had time to talk about the parameters of settlement and it's fair to acknowledge in England and Wales it's quite broad that the, the discretion the court has and therefore those parameters of settlement we will always have spoken to our clients about, you know, what what does a good day, what's a good outcome look like, what do we think is the worst possible outcome, what what are their own parameters, what would they be comfortable settling for. Often they will have gone and taken financial advice by that stage as well so that they can understand what the implications of a particular settlement are. So Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of time for, for people to prepare. And, I mean, broadly speaking, we're talking about from issuing a court application, it will take three to four months to get to first hearing the directions hearing and then typically another four five months after that to get to the second hearing so we are talking about a number of months there
0: so again film and television and, and stage stuff with the the moment where one spouse and their team of 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 legal representatives are completely blindsided by something that's revealed about the finances or whatever it It just doesn't really go like that.
2: It doesn't go like that. And often I find the drama has been actually during COVID that both parties, poor things have had to live under the same roof. Uh, So what you're trying to do often, Joe, aren't we, is actually calm a situation down in that period, Leading up to the hearing, and, mm-hmm. as Joe said, just preparing the ground the groundwork for healthy negotiations at that hearing, which is essentially like a a court led mediation. It isn't as dramatic at all as 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 often people think it's going to be. I had a client I've got a hearing on Monday actually, and had a client asking me, will I have to say anything and I said no do not worry at all. Your barrister will do all of the talking for you. You'll get to see the position statement, which is a statement your barrister prepares before that hearing. And we'll go through it in a lot of detail with you. And please don't worry. And he felt very reassured by that.
0: So by that stage, then, of course, you'd have seen your spouse's um, financial disclosure thing. So the moment where you might perhaps say, actually, I don't think you've been honest in this disclosure would be something you'd prepared already with your... Uh, legal representatives.
1: Absolutely. Yes. So yes, yeah, so not not quite uh, as in the movies as you describe, Mark. a case this week for example where I shared with my client her husband's financial disclosure and it it very quickly triggered a phone call say well I'm sure there's a few missing bank accounts in here Um, so Mm. it tends to be that they have time as we say to go through to to discuss that with us Um, the questions will be asked and then we'll consider the answers provided so over that period of time um, they'll, they'll get more familiar with the disclosure but it is interesting because certainly again during the time that I've practiced the importance of all of that has become much more significant because there was a, a leading case 20 years ago now, White and White, where for the first time the court said the starting point in these cases is 50-50 division of the capital. So prior to that point, particularly in that the bigger money cases, there wasn't that starting point. So, for example, when Sir Terence Conran went through his divorce, oh. he, he only, and I speak loosely, had to pay £10 million of his, I think it was £70 million, fortune out to his, his ex-wife. Since, since White and White, it's been terribly important to try to to try to, uh, determine what, what every last penny is in the cases. Mm-hmm. So these questions, the financial disclosure, have assumed a lot more significance, perhaps in recent years than previously. Breaking good. Rethinking
2: separation and divorce. Brought to you by Forsters.
0: There must be be circumstances where one party is desperate not to go to court and have their you know their outgoings for example um exposed in 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 that way i mean is that that must be quite helpful if if you're the other side
1: I mean, yes, potentially it is. I can. The only recent instance I can think of is a case where I suspect that there was some tax reasons why one of the parties was quite concerned about the financial disclosure being pulled together on his behalf. Um, and fortunately, his solicitor absolutely rightly said to him, "Well, you have to be full and frank in your disclosure." Um, and I'm now that that couple. I hope will go into mediation, and I hope we'll be able to resolve things. Now, of course, I would never use that in that way and try to get a better outcome for my client but it's certainly feeding into thoughts about you know she she doesn't want a big court battle she wants to get things sorted out but it's making everybody more willing to engage in the mediation process and to try to avoid the court process that we only put in place just to try to try to move things along
0: Mm -hmm. what access do, do the press and media have to divorce cases to the actual courtroom and to the information afterwards
1: So the access that the media have to the family court proceedings is a very very topical subject and something which has long been debated, certainly in recent years we've been debating it quite closely. short answer is accredited members of the press are permitted to come into first appointments, those first directions hearings we've talked about. Mm. They're not permitted to come to the second hearing, the the FDR, and they can come to to final hearings. The information that they are entitled to see is, is fairly limited. And judges also have power to impose reporting restrictions over what the media can actually write about. So my experience is it's actually quite rare for accredited members of the media to show an interest in anything other than the big money cases or the celebrity cases. What this also feeds into, though, I mean, in, in recent years, there have been more couples who've been interested in, in privatised justice, as we describe it. So taking matters into either a private FDR um, or indeed into arbitration, where there'd be no concerns about confidentiality, about washing your, your dirty laundry in public, because all of that will be completely confidential and away from the, the glare of, of potential publicity in court.
0: Okay. So let's come back to process. So we've talked about the initial hearing and that, that that's often quite sort of perfunctory. How long would people generally have to wait for the second hearing? And are there circumstances where it might not even come to the second hearing?
2: Yeah, well, I think I think normally people wait um, beyond the first hearing another three months, often sometimes a bit longer for the second hearing. Um, And there are circumstances where you can leapfrog the first hearing, go straight to the second hearing if you can get everything in order beforehand. Um, I would say it's normally I think the high majority of my cases actually settle at the middle hearing, which is the FDR that Joe's talked about. Hmm. And the majority of my cases now are actually going into private negotiation hearings, as we've talked about as well. It's very, very rare. In fact, for the last two years, I haven't had any final hearings whatsoever. Although Joe, I think you've had some experience of final hearings over the last few years, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I mean Rose is right, it is incredibly rare for any case to go to a contested, fully contested final hearing where a judge hears evidence, you'll have husband in the witness box, wife in the witness box, any value is giving evidence as well, submissions made about the facts in the case, and then a judge tells the couple at the end what the outcome should be. So I tend to average one of those about every three years or so. Um, and in terms of of wider applications, I've said to you before, Marcus, I love a stat, so I'm gonna go back to some stats very briefly. But I'm told at the moment there are about 40,000 financial applications made associated with divorce um, every year in England and Wales. Of those applications, uh, two thirds of them are actually consent applications. In other words, the couple only contact the court because they've already reached an agreement. They don't need any court time at all. It's just to present the information and ask a judge to ratify it. And of the other one third, they will require some court time whether it's just that first appointment to get the information um, produced by their spouse. Sometimes they do need that judicial steer that comes out of an FDR, and then very, very occasionally they need a final hearing. But although I don't think there are any hard and fast stats, I think it's only sort of 2 3% of cases overall that will end mm. up at that final contested hearing. So it's a fairly small number.
0: Just to be clear, Joe, a, a judicial steer... Uh, what I'm hearing when you say that is the the pressure of having to deal with court and everything that that means is is but is have I understood you correctly? <laughs>
1: So when I say judicial steer, at that financial dispute resolution stage, having heard all the facts, the judge will say, right, I've heard both cases. I've seen the offers on the table. Either I think Mr. X is right or Mrs. X is right, or more more often, I think the answer is not not quite somewhere in the middle, but somewhere between the two. And the other thing the judge will and and that they do do in our experience of that hearing is read the couple, the riot act about costs and say to them, look, you've, you've already incurred costs costs of x if you end up going to a final hearing that will likely be approximately double the costs again your your pot in your case is worth y you know it's just not proportionate to carry on arguing which in most cases it's not both in terms of cost financial but also emotional and therefore there'll be a really strong encouragement on them to settle the case which is absolutely appropriate
0: I and mean, they must, at that stage, when they're advised about cost, be gl- at least glancing at you guys going, yeah, you cost a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a bit, uh, what I'm getting at is it's, it's an odd sort of thing that the, the judiciary at that stage are kind of using your very presence and your job as a bit of uh, leverage to encourage people to, to sort this out.
2: Yes, I mean that's quite an awkward point. Obviously, sometimes, yeah. but but my, all of the time, we've made sure our clients are well versed and know exactly what our costs are going to be. It's our duty as lawyers to do that. So, yes, and they're often, no one suggests not good value. Let's be
0: clear <laughs> <Exactly>. about that. <laughs> I,
2: and I think, I think you know, I think you have to invest in the process in order to get what you want out of it. You know, and I think that's that's the important thing as well. But of course, judges are using it very cleverly to to bang the parties' heads together and say, "Come on, guys, we can settle this. Let's get on and do it."
0: Yeah, and yeah, there,
2: yeah. there was I mean if I may, there was a horrendous case in the reported in the Daily Mail, uh, my
1: favourite law reports um, about six months ago, um, and it was a case where the couple I think the pot was worth about six hundred thousand mm-hmm. um, pounds, and by the time they got to final hearing, they ended up with five thousand pounds each. And they spent the wow. rest on legal costs. Now, wow. clearly, in any civilised society, that, that can't be right. And it is a very hot topic at the moment. And, of course, it's incumbent upon solicitors rightly to give projections at every turn. In fact, the court rules changed about six months ago. So there's an obligation ahead of every hearing to tell your clients and to file with the court what the costs are going to be up to the next stage if things mm. don't settle at the hearing. That being blunt it's also incumbent upon the parties to listen and sometimes they're so ingrained in the litigation that even with those warnings you know it's unfortunate when i have cases where somebody might say to me i'd sooner spend it on the lawyers than on settling this case i mean that can never be right that absolutely Mm. can never be right breaking good rethinking separation and divorce brought to you by forsters
0: How does a court approach spousal maintenance? I mean, do they have a a set of guidelines that they follow or is everything case by case?
2: Well I think spousal maintenance again is a really hot topic actually isn't it Joe because what yes, the, yes. the courts the courts are at the moment in a state of flux about this very issue because there's quite a lot of people that are saying it should be a different way to the way it is currently at the cur- currently there's a lot of discretion as we've already mentioned that judges have to make Orders for spousal maintenance on the basis of needs, and in that sort of discretion, you can have something called joint lives orders, which can, which are often colloquially known as the meal ticket for life. Or you can have term orders. You can have nominal orders. That's quite technical points there, but but we're seeing, aren't we, Joe, a lot, of, a huge move away from meal tickets for life for joint live orders, and we're moving much more in the direction of term orders and in the direction of. Um, You know, achieving independence at the earliest opportunity. There's a huge debate within family law at the moment about whether there should be more directive approach to spousal maintenance versus the discretionary approach that we have. I've got a really strong view about it, actually, which lots of lawyers don't necessarily have, and that's that I think the discretionary approach should should continue and judges should still look at case by case, looking at all the other factors in the case and determining maintenance because I think otherwise there's going to be an unfairness, particularly where you have a wife who perhaps has given up her career to look after the children and she's had a 20-year marriage and she's basically pushed off a cliff at the end of the marriage in terms of her support. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think there are always going to be those kind of cases. So I think there should always be an element of discretion.
0: Yeah, I mean, it must be in, in, in mediating stuff like that, very difficult to assess exactly that scenario where one partner in, in a marriage has sacrificed a lot for the good of the marriage, perhaps children probably more often than not, uh, to, to sort of assess, well, what was that worth financially? Um, very difficult to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. And Rosie's right. There is a a debate ongoing at the moment. And although our courts remain generous on spousal maintenance, arguably they're slightly less so than they were five years ago. So the approach here is very much to enable that transition to independence to the extent possible. And the extent possible will depend on exactly that, the, the, the choices made during the marriage. And in a significant number of cases, independence isn't possible. And that's usually because of age and because, you know, Mm. the the person receiving the maintenance can't go and exploit an earning capacity at the stage in life that they're at, or for other reasons arising from choices made during the marriage. But actually, I mean, one of the debates is we are significantly different south of the border in England and Wales than we are in Scotland. And in Mm. Scotland, the view they take is, look, marriage is a partnership um, that should be dissolved with an equal sharing of the assets accumulated during the marriage, but with no provision for future needs unless there would be grave hardship. So they have this sort of grave hardship test. So in Scotland, they have a maximum of three years of spousal maintenance on divorce. And I understand three years is quite exceptional. It's quite rare to get three years. So there is that really significant difference. And I I agree with Rosie on the question of, yes, it's good that the court has discretion. It's a needs-based exercise. The people will prepare budgets of what they think they need to spend going forward. The court will look at them quite critically and then decide what, what an appropriate figure is. will factor in the extent to which the recipient has an earning capacity or can exploit one in the future, and a figure will be arrived at. Now, there were recommendations made seven years ago by our Law Commission about bringing in some sort of formulae, like, uh, as I understand that they have in Canada and other countries. And I think that's something which will be looked
2: at over the years ahead, and we may get more guidance, more more guidelines which are brought in. I think I'd just be very reluctant to take human decision-making out of the equation and having an yeah. algorithm, an algorithm, or we all know about algorithms, don't we? An algorithm or a formula or a maintenance cap, I think would just be too limiting.
0: Uh, what I was going to ask you both next is, what happens if you're mid-proceedings and one of you wins the lottery? And I do want an answer to that, but I'm also conscious... As I think about that uh, silly question, that actually over the last 10, 11 months, a great many people's uh, financial arrangements will have changed dramatically. I mean, you know, as a comedian, mine have hugely. My income's down by about 90%. If I were going through anything like this at the moment, it would be very hard to assess... uh, Uh, what my earnings are going to be or anything. How, How much has it affected things since Covid came along?
1: I think it's affected things quite significantly in lots of people, Marcus, in a similar situation, unsurprisingly. And we've had to give advice on a case by case basis. There have been situations where people have had to go back to their former spouse and say, I simply can't afford to pay the level of spousal maintenance that, that was ordered. Here's the evidence of what my earnings now are. And if they're sensible, they've been able to agree a change. The problem in those cases, if you can't agree a change, you have to go back to court, which is is never costs or is rarely cost proportionate, depending mm. upon the figures actually involved. Uh, mediation is is a good route for resolving those cases. But yeah, unsurprisingly there have been quite a few people, haven't there, Rosie, in that very situation?
2: Yeah, I've had, I've had a lot of clients in the last year who've been in that very situation. And I think it's a very sad circumstance. And again, we're talking about legal fees before. Legal fees are very tight in that circumstance as well, because you have to be proportionate about what you're trying to achieve. Yes. Um, and yeah, it can get very difficult. The lottery question is a different one, actually. Isn't yes, it,
0: let's though? have a look at that. What happened? <laughs> you're halfway through, you've made your financial declaration and you, you think, oh, I feel absolutely awful. I'm going to pick up a scratch card bang, next thing you know, you've got half a million quid sitting in your account. What happens? Well, the other person, if you're the one who's purchased the tickets
2: um and in other words you you effectively acting as a syndicate the other person if they haven't purchased the ticket it's regarded as non matrimonial property and therefore you shouldn't really be getting a share of it but in actual fact if it's been intermingled or it's been used to purchase a family home you might have the ability to share in it and there was a case i think in 2011 2012 which decided this very issue where the couple had been living in a council house when when uh, the wife won the won the lottery and um, the judge found that the wife had been playing playing the national lottery. She's the one who'd purchased the ticket. The husband didn't even know she purchased the ticket. And the lottery prize was 500,000. And he decided that was non-matrimonial property. However, the wife then used it, some of the money to purchase a property, um, which became the new family home. And in doing so, she converted that part of her non-matrimonial asset into matrimonial property
0: good grief breaking good
1: rethinking separation and divorce brought to you
0: by forsters so uh, here's a straight simple question who gets the house
1: well, Mark, as you say, a straight, simple question. That, that, of course, can be fraught with difficulty. It can be a very contentious question. So, first question in any case about the what we call the, the former matrimonial home, or FMH in our speak, is will it be kept or will it be sold? Um, so, of course, that in turn can depend on how much of the pot does it represent overall. So, therefore, how realistic is it for one person to keep it? And also questions around how much uh, mortgage is outstanding on it. How would the mortgage be, be treated on divorce? Will it be paid off? Is that affordable? Mm. Will it be transferred into the sole name of one party? Will the mortgage company agree to that, especially if it's to the financially weaker party? So, all sorts of questions around that. Generally speaking, therefore, the options are a home can be transferred to, to one of the spouses on divorce. Yeah. Secondly, in, in certain cases, it's actually possible to retain it jointly and structure the ownership so that each of the spouses continues to have an interest. That doesn't have to be 50-50. And there might be a trigger for sale, which revolves around the children finishing their education, for example. So that's a second option third option you just sell it now and you crack on with it and you divvy up the proceeds in whatever are felt to be the the appropriate proportions or finally it's possible to for the court to order all the parties to agree that it will be sold by a defined future date which again might be linked particularly with yes. with the child finishing their next important set of exams so there are all of those options but If you're keeping the property and you're trying to decide who is going to actually stay put there, I mean, invariably, it tends to be the children's primary carer, if there is one, so as to minimise disruption to the children. And there's also, there is a big argument around status quo, and where one party does move out at the point of separation, it can then be quite difficult, not impossible, but more difficult for them to argue for a return to the property and them keeping it as a result of the financial settlement. But, I mean, if there's a big, big disagreement about this and the parties really can't agree who is to retain the house, the court will often just order a sale so that everybody can start afresh.
0: Mm. So, I mean, I suppose it's fairly obvious that where there are children, particularly young children, concerned, a court would seek it where they can for them to stay in a house that they're familiar with, with, with everything else changing around them. That must be in some way reassuring.
2: Yeah, well, where where possible, the court will try to achieve stability for the children. And obviously, it's preferable for the children to live in owned accommodation rather than rented accommodation. And in needs cases, those cases where there's really not much there, as Joe's already mentioned, there might be a situation where the property can be retained by both parties and a sale is deferred. So perhaps you keep hold of the property until the children reach majority in order to provide that stability, because the children are the court's first consideration. The welfare of minor children is the court's first consideration. Mm -hmm in in financial
0: disputes yeah um how have approaches towards financial outcomes changed over the course of your careers i mean has a lot happened since you started practicing law uh that is very different now and and how do you see it changing in the next few years
1: Gosh, that's such a huge question. I think for for both you and I, Rosie, there will have been very significant changes, actually, um, despite the fact the law hasn't changed, the approach and social mores have. So just a few from my perspective. I've mentioned there arguably is more creativity in outcomes. There's more and more being done outside the court arena, um, which is good. Um, I've talked about the case of White and a 50-50 starting point. So that was huge in terms of approaches towards these cases and ensuring that financial Disclosure is complete. Um, Less generous maintenance for a lesser term, we've touched upon. Um, I mean, another interesting point for me is the international, increasingly international nature of our work. And then finally, Mm. we've talked about prenups and postnups earlier on in this series. And uh, I mentioned, I think in that podcast, the big case on prenups, Radmacher and Granatino, was decided now just over 10 years ago because the average marriage is around 11, 12 years. And because prenups and postnups became more prevalent as a result of Radmacher, I'm now starting to see the cases reaching the point of divorce. I'm starting to see cases now where it's more commonplace for there to be nuptial agreements at the point of divorce. And you're then having to interpret those documents. But equally, it means the scope for litigation is is reduced and the, the issues are
2: narrowed. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with all of, all of what Joe said, but I think I think for me, I think um, this creativity which Joe touched upon, this idea of kind of finding other other ways of carving out um, a settlement for your clients, combinations of mediation, arbitration, solicitor negotiation, private hearings that we've also talked about. I think it's just finding the right solution for that particular case and being a lot more agile as lawyers and trying to find those solutions and clients being more creative. I think we mentioned this in one of the earlier podcast, but this idea of self-help. Often clients come to you now with a lot more knowledge than they did five or 10 years ago. They're coming with a a preconceived idea of what, what they think they, what solution might suit their particular case and the direction of travel that they mm. want to go in and so you're often either managing that and saying well I don't think that's a good idea I think actually you should be thinking about all of these other things or you might actually say to them well actually that's a great way of doing it let's get your spouse in let's have a, a roundtable meeting with their lawyer and let's sort this out but I think more and more clients are coming in aren't they Joe and saying I don't want to go to court or I don't want to do this let's try and sort this out in another in another way mm. um, I think I think in terms of the next, how I envisage the next few years, I think that's a really, really difficult question. I would hope, as I said before, that this element of discretion is still maintained. I get very concerned when... Judges are saying, or um, perhaps politicians are saying, actually, there should be a, you know, a, a certain, you know, a cap on maintenance, or we should have really prescribed rules about this or really prescribed rules about that. I always worry that we're missing a trick in those sorts of scenarios, and there will Mm. be situations where that might be unfair and there might be an unfair outcome. So I love the idea that judges, English judges, maintain this discretion to look at all of the factors in the case to produce a very sort of balanced outcome and I just hope that that's uh, that's continued in our in our um financial remedies um court cases
0: yeah so it seems that the the, the takeaway really is avoid court if you can and don't check your lottery numbers until after it's settled.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think avoid avoid court if you can, absolutely. as hopefully Never mind we clarified. that. What about the
0: lottery, Joe?
1: <laughs> uh, I'm going to come back to the lottery, Marcus. But I was going to say, as we've hopefully clarified, there are cases where some court time is, is necessary, yeah. is important. So we mustn't demonise court. We mustn't have people think, you know, that they can't go to court if they really need to. The lottery tickets, yes. I mean, I think the best advice is don't play the lottery until the ink has dried um, on your financial <laughs> order. Um, obviously, you're under an ongoing duty of full and frank disclosure until that point. So you can't uh, try not to disclose the fact of you having had a lottery win if you, if you have. But as Rosie said, there may be very compelling reasons why it's appropriate for you to keep most, if not all,
2: of that on, on a semi-serious note. Statistically, you're, more, you're almost four times more likely to be hit by lightning than to actually win the national lottery.
0: So you're saying there's a chance?
2: (laughs) There's definitely a
0: chance. (laughs) I've done more scratch cards since the start of COVID than I ever had in my whole life before. (laughs) I bet you have. Looking for any any good news, any (laughs) good news at all. And there was good news this week when uh, I won two pounds on a scratch card. I bought wow. three scratch cards, but one of them came in with two pounds. So I pu-
2: I'm putting on two pounds every day. So there you go. Are you really? <laughs> Just eating wow. lots of chocolate. <laughs> oh, I did
0: that. I, I thought you meant putting two pounds on the lottery every day. <laughs> no, right,
2: exactly I'm right. putting on two pounds. I'm, I'm not sweet. getting
0: involved in weighing myself until well after all this is over. I can tell you that. Much. <laughs> Goodness um, me. And that's all the time we've got for today. I have been Marcus Brigstock and will probably continue to be. Huge thanks, of course, to Joe Edwards and Rosie Shum and our producer, Sophie Black, who's done a wonderful job of putting this series together for us. Thank you, Sophie. If you have any questions or thoughts, please email us at family at or tweet us at forsters.family and we will try our best to answer them. Until then, thank you very much for listening.